Hello and welcome to the Mystic Cast, where you join Jack Stafford and Deborah Littleboy, members of the Aetherius Society, the cosmic religion for the Aquarian Age, as we break down the barriers between religion, science, metaphysics, philosophy, and mysticism, all of which are really only aspects of the self-same quest for truth. Please note this is an independent program, not produced or fact-checked by the Aetherius Society. Today, our guest is Tim Wyatt. What I'm, what I'm planning to do with you, with your, again, with your permission, is that um, we talk about the, the grand plan, evolution's grand plan, which I know is the lecture that I latched onto when I was looking through. And, and then I'll let you explain from, from your lecture's point of view. And we try to get the viewers to see what it is and how we can cooperate with that. Um, and we have in the Ethereum Society, um, a two-hour lecture by Dr. King on the Cosmic Plan, which was given in 1974. So I've seen some of that. What I'm hoping, I'm seeing if we can find that common threads, because sometimes we use different words, but actually the meaning behind them are exactly the same. And I think that that's important that we we explore the, the similarities um, so that people can understand what's going on, if you like, behind the scene by the masters. Well, indeed, and I obviously come from mainly a theosophical perspective, but not exclusively. A lot of uh, Dr. King's um, stuff is pure theosophy, really, you know, so there's a lot of kind of crossover there. Um, and, you know, various people have, you know, different ideas of what this grand plan is, you know, and they don't factor in things like uh, the elements of human free will that we have, which is, of course, modified by that law of laws, the law of cause and effect or karma and how all this plays into it in immensely complicated ways. So, yeah. So how do you want to do this then, uh, Deborah? Do you want to just kind of start or have we started already or what do you want to do? I think we've started okay. We make this sort of like a flowing conversation, but I really want to give you the floor, Tim. And, um, and I'll try not to buck in too much, so my ears will be open. Um, just to let you, if you want, uh, tell our, our our audience your your take on evolution, the grand plan, how we can cooperate with it. I think that's important. People need to know it's going to be done for them. We have to all get together and and make active moves to to make this happen. Okay, so over right. to you, my love. All right. Okay, well, the world's main religion at the moment is what we might call material science, scientism. And this has it that uh, the world was created in a big bang 14 plus billion years ago, that there are only physical states of matter, there is nothing um, uh, other than that. And also the universe came into effect by a giant cosmic accident and therefore it's meaningless and purposeless. Occult science, in whatever form that comes, esoteric science, looks on this kind of cosmogony in a very, very different way. And it says that there is a function and a purpose and a meaning behind everything. It also... Um, is presaged on the fact that everything in the universe is connected. Everything is conscious. There is no uh, empty space or dead matter. Everything is alive. There is nothing that 
is inert and there are no great uh, vacuums of space as science used to believe that we're all part of one giant soup of consciousness and therefore as the quantum physicists told us matter can interact with with matter a long way away um as Einstein called it, spooky action at a distance, because he didn't like quantum physics very much. But um, so we know that everything is interconnected, everything is conscious, and everything. And so the esoteric view of the grand plan involves all kinds of things. But crucial to all of this are is the notion of cycles, and this is something I've written and spoken about extensively. And there are numerous different cycles, if you think about it, you know, day and night, uh, winter and summer, um, all kinds of things which are obvious like that and the, the seasons of the year. But there are a number of important cycles that the esoteric traditions talk a lot about. Perhaps the main one at the moment being this idea of the procession of the equinoxes. Now, this is a great long period of time, 25,920 years, divided into 12 houses of the zodiac, each consisting of 2,160 years or thereabouts. And it's said that we are now transitioning from the age of Pisces, which began round about the time of the birth of Christ, uh, but no one actually agrees when these particular cycles start or indeed end, but it, it started around then. So it's in its final phases now, and that may be why the world is such a difficult place, because every 2,160 years, um, you're going to get some kind of upheaval because transition points are always full of conflict and difficulty. Now, I think we're also at a more pivotal point of this cycle because I think if you go back into ancient history, many events happened round about uh, 12,000 years ago, 10,000 BC. Many cultures talk about a flood and a catastrophe and comet strikes and all sorts of things. Uh, we hear about the flood in a number of mythologies, uh, not least the Bible. So there were pivotal events which happened at the start of this particular phase of the procession sometime 10 to 12 years ago it was characterized by a lot of developments in civilization obviously mainstream science and mainstream archaeology doesn't allow for these things and still insist that everything began in Sumeria around about 3000 BC but I think many of the uh, ancient alien theorists and um, alternative archaeologists have come to very very different conclusions and suggested that some of the monuments that we say were started maybe 3000 BC may in fact be much older than that. So this is one of the key cycles which um, is operative, but obviously there are many lesser cycles as well which influence things. And um, clearly another one is the one that it is abstracted from Hindu um, mythology, the four yugas, these great ages which last for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And it's popularly said that we are now in the age of darkness known as the Kali Yuga. And we may well be coming to the end of this. But so everything seems to point at the moment to a kind of major transition point of some kind. 
and that's kind of measurable by all the different um, standards and cycles. Another very interesting cycle, um, which is related to all this, but slightly different, is taken from the work of Alice Bailey and her followers. And this involves this idea of um, hidden network of wise adept beings, the masters of theosophy, they go by different names, um, advanced beings who guide the planet. And they have a collective at a place called Shambhala, which is somewhere in Central Asia, probably not in physical form anymore, probably in some finer form such as etheric matter, but not certainly a physical form. And interestingly, um, in the 25th year of any new century, i.e. 2025 and in 1925, there is a major conclave of these wise beings to kind of set the agenda, set the tone for the next 100 years. And it is said that there will be major developments at this particular point. And what's interesting about all this, although I'm not an astrologist, um, an astrologer, I know that the astrological view is that 2025 is a particularly important year as well. So this plan, uh, this great kind of evolutionary plan, uh, works out in different ways. And obviously, as the military say, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. You know, plans are subject to change all the time. But underlying all this is a much wider scheme of evolution. And in theosophy, it's an immensely uh, wide-ranging thing, which I won't go into all the details of because it's quite mind-bending, but we talk about chains of globes and globes and rounds and great long, long, long periods of time, far longer than you know conventional science would allow because they run into trillions of years. But basically, as far as the human race are concerned on this planet, at this phase of evolution, and the esoteric tradition says that the earliest beginnings of human beings on this planet were not a couple of million years ago, but maybe 18, 20, or even longer than that, millions of years ago, in prototype form, not as we are now as human beings. Uh, the theosophical idea is that there are seven main development groups, which it calls root races. And these are kind of you know, development groups of humanity. Uh, and meant to be seven of them, each of them has seven sub-races. And these are not kind of race in the way that we understand ethnicity. They are development groups. But these terms were particularly coined at a time when the word had slightly different connotations. But Let's talk about, you know, the, the development group. So we're now in the fifth of these development groups. Um, and prior to us were the fourth and the third. It was only in the third that human beings started to resemble human beings today and have solid bodies. These gradually solidified and got smaller and smaller and smaller. So we're now at the point five of the seventh root race. Uh, sorry, of the fifth root race. So we're in the fifth sub-race of the fifth root race. It all gets slightly confusing, which means that we're more than halfway through this particular cycle. And, and it's 
said that from now on, human beings probably have reached their most material level in terms of their physical bodies. And over time, we'll, you know, over many hundreds and thousands of years, we'll start to etherealize much more so that we become made of much finer matter. This will be very difficult for people of a material persuasion to understand. But uh, this, I think, will inevitably happen. And I think we're going through at the moment. Um, before, before, you just, before I lose this um, thing, we're not, we're not all of 5.5, or are we? Or do we have some of us that are, are lagging behind at maybe 5.3 and 4, and some of us which are, which are higher up the scale? Is there, is there that sort of um, span, or is, is it very much that, but that we're all, every single dot of us, at no. 5.5? No, no, no. Uh, people are at very different levels. 5.5 is kind of considered to be the current benchmark um, for the most advanced traits. And so you'll find 5.5 people in every country, in every race on Earth. It's not about any particular ethnicity. It's about a stage of development and a stage of understanding uh, that human beings are not just about their physical bodies, but they have subtle um, elements to them too. You know, they have an energy body, which we call sometimes the etheric body. They have an astral body and a mental body and even more spiritualized bodies above that. Um, and so the purpose of being here is not just to, you know, spend a certain amount of time in a physical body. Um, and then you know die and get reincarnated again, but to work on all these aspects of ourselves, because we're still at a stage um, as human beings where we are largely concentrated in our physical bodies, because that's the place we know best. To a lesser extent, we are um, we're quite desire-driven creatures, and therefore we operate on this plane of desire, the astral plane, where it's all about emotions, and we. You've only got to look, you know, anywhere in the world to see the high and inflamed level of emotion that you get amongst people at the moment. Um, and so this kind of reflects the time. So this, this theosophical, this esoteric perennial philosophy idea that you go through all these different development groups, it said that the sixth sub-race of this fifth root race will be developing in places like... Um, the West Coast of America, Brazil, South Africa, and possibly Australia. And there's talk about other development groups happening um, in Central Europe and Russia as well. So clearly the focus of what happens in any one epoch uh, moves from one place to another. So the previous um, root races and branch races, a branch race is basically a nation race. So Britain has a branch race, France does, Germany does, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and each of these has its own unique flavors. But they're all characterized by the fact that um, eventually, after a period of rise, reaching a point of maturity, they all decline and die, as do all civilizations. So this idea of constant, constant cycles um, interrupting each other and, and bringing things to a close shows why no civilization ever lasts for more than a few hundred or a very few thousand years in the case of perhaps uh, Egypt and so on.
So in in the features, um, have you been told, or, or is there is there thought about what happened on July um, the eighth in nineteen sixty four? Is that is that a date that you know? Um, have you heard about? That's not. I'll, I'll continue. I'm not familiar with that date. No. Because in the in the theory of society teachings, we're told that's the most important date ever in the evolution of planet Earth, and we're told that on that day, the Earth took um, stupendous energies, more energy than she'd ever taken since her since she was formed, and at that stage, she was told by the karmic lords that she would have to take this energy and to start to um, her own evolutionary path back. She'd held back her evolution when she took us on board, which fits in with your um, 18 million years ago. We told 18 million, 600,000 years, blah, that Shambhala was brought into being above the Gobi Desert. So, so we've got this, so, so we've got that same that same linkage going, but to say that the features that we were given, which um, was given through Dr. King by cosmic intelligences, is that that was the 8th of July, 1964, was a typical date when, when the vibrations of the planet would start to increase. And therefore, we would have to be, if you like, learning our lessons a lot quicker. So, to be coming round, and that that's going to cause like the, the people that are, as you've explained, start very much in a materialistic mindset, not even accepting perhaps that there's a um, life after death or we've got uh, extra bodies. Um, that they they will be struggling, and the emotional um, their emotional bodies will be um, rebelling. Is what. We're seeing with like the increased tension and the war. I mean, we've always had wars, I know, but it just seems to be the pot's boiling a little bit here. Um, so, so, so we in in our teachers, we've actually got this this state where where something significant happened. Um, told that we need to cooperate by letting people know. That we do have, that we are more than our physical body. That this, but this physical body is a receiver and a transmitter set, which we can use, use our minds, and transcend the materialistic aspect. Is any of that fitting in with 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 um, Alice Bailey and um, Madame Blavatsky? Absolutely, it fits. You know, hand in glove with all these things, because a lot of these groups, although sometimes they've been quite antagonistic towards each other, and certainly individuals within these groups have been very nasty and spiteful to one another over the years. Despite that, they do have a commonality. And, you know, I'm one of those people who takes a very broad view of these things, because I think wisdom comes in bursts and starts, and it comes from the most unexpected places and to say this person is right and that person is wrong and to get all censorious about it and say, you know, you shouldn't be reading this or shouldn't be reading that. 
that has haunting echoes of a kind of, you know, a mental tyranny. And I certainly won't tolerate anything like that. And there are people within organizations I've come across who want to do that. They want to act in this kind of doctrinaire, dogmatic way and, and turn certain people uh, into avatars. You know, there, there are many messengers on this path. That this stuff comes to us in many different forms through many different people who are contacted and overshadowed and influenced in all kinds of different ways and then are able to transmit and, and know these particular things. So this stuff is coming to us and uh, it's, you know, it's important that we stay as open-minded as possible and, and stop all this kind of uh, sectarianism, which often exists in the, you know, the esoteric world. Now is an important time. Now it's a really important time for esoteric ideas and alternative views of the world. Alternative non-materialistic views of the world need to take precedence once again, and they need to, you know, they need to reach um, a much higher status than we've allowed these things to do in the past. You know, they need to become the the superior idea that we pursue. This idea that you know there are loftier realms than us, that there isn't just this material world. Um, and as soon as we understand that then I think humanity will start going through this identity crisis because that's what I think it is. I think hum humanity has an, an identity crisis and it doesn't know what it wants. It doesn't know who it is. It doesn't dare to ask where it's come from, where it's going, what's the purpose of life. But more and more people are able to do this. And this is what spirituality is all about. Spirituality has been imprisoned by religions and manipulated by all sorts of people from, you know, gurus to TV evangelists. And it needs to be brought back into something which is a natural process of life and not subject to the dogma and rigors of any particular religious perspective or prism that you might put it through. Or indeed any other prism, you know, like the, you know, the thing I mentioned earlier on, the prevailing religion of scientism, materialistic science and the worship of technology. So how would you propose, so pick you, you're the top of the tree now, Tim, how would you propose to get this vital message out to the mass of humanity? What, what would be the, the, you had a plan, in plan, what would it be? Well, it's an interesting question, and having spent more than 50 years as a writer and a journalist for most of that time, obviously communicating fresh ideas has been one of the things that um, I've had to do. And I think really um, to present these ideas before people are ready for them is, is completely futile. So what I think you have to do is you have to kind of open this up on a, a number of different fronts. One of the things that most people respond to when you talk to them about these ideas in a roundabout way is the idea of death. And, you know, basically people have two views, don't they, about death. Either it's good night, Vienna, oblivion, that's the end of it all, and you'll never be here again, and oh, what a terrible tragedy, etc. Or B, it's part of a natural cycle. You, your physical body dies, you spend time on the inner planes, 
You reincarnate in another body, just as you've done hundreds or maybe thousands of times before. So there are these two particular views. And interestingly enough, I'm just doing a talk on this for some American people in a, in a few days' time. It's, the talk's called Why Reincarnation is Making a Comeback. And if, if when I was born back in the early 1950s, you'd ask people in Britain or America, do you believe in rebirth or reincarnation? Um, very few people would have said that because obviously the church view is that you're not reincarnated, you just go into some sort of celestial waiting room somewhere for eternity until something happens. But there is no notion anymore. Christianity, of course, used to believe in reincarnation until it outlawed it in the 6th century, but um, it certainly doesn't anymore. But nevertheless, about a third of Christians actually believe in reincarnation. Uh, even 12% of atheists believe in reincarnation. This is according to American figures, and I imagine it's much the same in, um, in the UK. So it is a popular notion, and it has been fueled to some extent by, you know, certainly during the counterculture of the 1960s when we absorbed cultures from the East, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, and other things, thanks to people like the Beatles and, and others. And it was a very important cultural crossover because it provided a very important alternative pivot point for people to focus their thoughts, you know. Maybe we do come round again. Maybe there is this law of cause and effect or karma. Maybe we are judged by the actions we take in a particular life. You know, and if we're a complete sod in this life, then we're going to have a bad time next time round. Or if not, then the time after that or the time after that, because karma never goes away. It's like parking tickets. It keeps coming back and back and back again to, uh, to haunt you and everything. So, you know, this is an identity crisis until people know that they are basically immortal beings who just happen to be stuck in flesh and bone for a few decades everything changes when people understand these things everything changes i think it's in a sense of risk that makes people responsible for their actions knowing that they can't just whip it up and and get away with it so yeah so, so am I taking from this that you would um, broadcast and get discussions around karma and reincarnation as a sort of starting point to get people interested, to pique their um, interest? And then from there, they explore whichever way their higher self take them, um, or on a more base level, or on, on what takes their fancy. Well, yeah, I mean, I look on death and the study of death and reincarnation as kind of entry-level occultism or esotericism, because it covers, if you think about it, it covers <clears throat> a lot of bases. It covers this idea of cycles. It covers this idea um, of everything being turned into something else constantly. There's nothing staying still at any point in the universe ever. Everything is constantly evolving into something else. It also... Um, indicates that there must be some subtle bodies, things, bodies which are not physical, which survive death and which are absorbed into the bodies we assume in new lives. The soul, if you like, to put it in its most simple terms, the higher proportion of us, uh, because in theosophy and most other esoteric traditions, they divide people into um, the basic, the 
the the mortal personality that lasts for just one life, and then the higher individuality or the soul, which gets passed through different bodies in different lives, to put it in its most simplistic terms. And this is an immortal principle. So we've got the perishable part of ourselves, our personalities, and our higher selves or souls. Problem is with a lot of people, um, what the personality, the everyday personality wants is based on desire. You know, I want this car, I want to have this relationship, I want this promotion, I want, I want, I want. And whereas the soul might have a completely different agenda, and it means that people are often in a state of civil war with themselves because the higher self, the soul wants one thing, um, but the, uh, the lowly personality with all its drives and passions wants something completely different. So until these two things get resolved, you know, this is going to cause people problems. And I'm sure this is the cause of a lot of mental illness, which we see in the world today, because people don't understand that they have these two halves to themselves. And it's basically, it's all concentrated in the mind. It's the higher mind, which thinks about, you know, lofty things and conceptualizes and appreciates things like truth and beauty. And then it's the lower mind, which is into sport and pornography and desires and sex and drinking and all the, you know, the lower um, immediate uh, needs and wants of the personality. So this is where it all comes. This is the pivot point between uh, the immortal parts of ourselves and the transient parts that are only going to last until we're 70 or 80 or whatever. So that's what people need to understand. And once they do understand that, I think it ultimately changes their view about everything. So that's why talking about death, people will always accuse you of being incredibly morbid if you bring up the topic of death. But when you say it's something that we all have to do, you know, it's all on our agendas. Um, and we've probably, if we think about it, if we go deep in ourselves, many of us are going to start to realize we've done it before and we'll do it again. And so it's not the big deal that it's become cracked up to be in this materialistic, you know, barren uh, world of the 21st century. I was speaking to a lady earlier on and she was saying that, that the way that we live our life is like an addiction. And she, and she was saying it, that we need to understand that the, the things that, that, um, we drive and we grasp for and we are selfish and we hold to us and we're frightened to let go is what blocks us from the, the, the oneness of everything and the, and the wonder of, of living in, in a, in this sort of, um, dense body but the i go back to the question that that i started with with you what how if somebody's not ready to give up the sports cars and um sex and rock and roll do we leave them until they do get ready is that sort of it you you you, you just keep you keep banging the drum on, on your truth and whoever picks it up, then that's fine. So offering with open hands and just leave everybody to just carry on with whatever they're doing. Well, prisons up and. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one, one thing we should never do because it's pointless and it's nasty is to evangelize. You know, we can be as enthusiastic as we like about ideas, but I always say to people, don't 
listen to a word, don't believe a word I say without testing it against other sources and, and particular, in particular, your own intuition. If what I'm saying doesn't ring true with you, then it's not for you. And people, what we have to remember is, you know, we talk about a world of equality and, and obviously equality is an important thing, but people are not equal in the sense that they are, have reached the same level of development. There is a vast, vast spectrum of people you know, ranging from people who are barely better behaved than some of the worst animals up to people of very, very elevated status spiritually and a great spectrum of people in between. And obviously people have essentially, you know, mind, body, spirit or something like that, you know, or however you want to talk about it, you know, body and soul. But there is a, you know, a higher part to them and physical lower part to them and this idea that everybody has reached the same kind of um, level of development is is incorrect because of the fact that without getting too abstruse about this um, humanity is individualized um, at different stages in different cycles in the past so one group of humanity is much older they're much older souls than the other group you know, it's not like a kind of, you know, a caste system or anything like that. It's just a fact. One group is much, much older than the other group. And therefore, having had more incarnations, most of that group will be um, at a more advanced level mentally um, in terms of being able to control their emotions, control their bodies, and be able to use their higher minds. Um, and also to use another principle, which is something that's very, very important and which it will be, you know, we talk about having a sixth sense, don't we? And certainly in theosophy, there is this sixth principle they talk about, which is um, basically wisdom intuition. And this is a way where you can kind of tap into those timeless realms where you get information coming direct to you, which bypasses um, or transcends the rational mind. This is, in its crudest form, intuition comes in terms of hunches and just insights and flashes of inspiration. It might be a stab in the solar plexus because that's where people often feel these things. People often deny this and they ignore that it's an important thing. It's that inner little voice where you absolutely know something to be right or you, you are convinced about a piece of information which has come to you from no other source. You know, you haven't got it through watching it on the television or some life experience. It's come to you through that higher channel. And when we can start to open that channel, as immediate generations of human beings, I think, will start to, we're already seeing it in children now. They have a much more developed sense of intuition than their parents or grandparents certainly did. And uh, these children are showing other traits like greater degrees of empathy in some cases and greater degrees of emotional intelligence perhaps than their forebears. So all this shows you that this evolution is proceeding, I believe, through some uh, divine plan or some purposeful plan that has been laid out. Not a plan that's set in stone, let I say, but one that is subject to an overall destination but can get there through numerous different modifications 
and via numerous different routes, if you like. So if somebody was to say to you, yeah, I do get hunches, I feel it in my gut of something, you know, something doesn't feel right. How how would you um, help them? So they come to you and said, Tim, it's happened, but how do I put that forward? How do I develop that? So do you have any any sort of hints and tips or um, exercises that, that you could advise them to start with? Well, to some extent, it's you've got to take a bit of a leap of faith here. You've got to be brave about this and just go with it sometimes. Because often, you know, we assume that our predominantly left brain um, logical side to our nature is the right one. Uh, we don't tend to think that a very important uh, organ where we also think is the heart. You know, we don't just think through our brains. And um, without getting too complicated, mind is not confined to the brain. Mind is... Uh, in the brain as, as a physical processor in the physical world, but mind extends beyond that. Um, and so people need to understand that uh, if they do get these intuitive feelings or gut instincts and everything, they're probably right. They're probably right, it, but it's just a question of how brave do I feel? How, how much do I feel that I can... <clears throat> trust those inner feelings however powerful they might be but can i really trust them and do i make that leap of faith do i go with this and that's down to individual choice some people are very risk averse and very timid and other people will say ah to hell with it just do it you know but um you know if you feel that something is the right thing to do sometimes it might come you know in in all sorts of unusual ways this it comes in terms of dreams sometimes or flashes or premonitions, you know, because the world that we can plug into is not this physical world, solely physical world of, of linear time where it flows out of the past through the present and into the future. The real world out there has got nothing to do with this. The, the real world out there lives in this kind of eternal present and somehow goes through all its cycles in mysterious ways I can't possibly imagine at my stage of evolution, but it does. And so, um, you know, we have to kind of understand this and, and say, what, well, am I going to surrender to this? Am I going to take a leap of faith? How strongly do I feel about it? That's all you can say to people. And then it's down to their free will and karmic circumstances as to how they will respond or react to this. Yeah, I think that's a big element of bravery involved in all of these things. People don't like to be seen as um, being different quite often, and they also are frightened of being laughed at and being told that they, oh, that that they're being silly. So, if I was to to, to say to somebody. They've got intuitive these intuitive flashes. I would I would ask them to first of all see whether it's a selfish thing, like what are they going to get gain from it, or is it more of a selfless thing, like it's not going to help. It might help other people, but also it's not. It's certainly not against anything. And then if there's no harm, 
then proceed bravely and watch and see what happens. Um, that I mean, that's that's just me. Know know what my I like to know what my body's doing. I like to know when I get an itchy nose what that means to Deborah. If I catch a thought that's that's a bit different, what does that mean to Deborah? But it is a a long, slow process, and I can say that my own experience is I get a lot wrong. I mis misread the signs. I'm told that they that that signs are never wrong, but you can read them in multitudinous ways. So, yeah, it's a slow well, journey. That's that's correct, and also uh, you do make a very important point, and it, it it applies not just to intuition, but to everything we do in life. You know, everything we do should have an altruistic underpinning. It should never be primarily about ourselves. Obviously, we all have basic needs we need to fulfil, but once you get beyond that, it should never be for personal motives. I mean, whatever we do needs to be about being of for a greater good without thought of advancement or profit or, you know, being famous and asked to Buckingham Palace to have a medal pinned on you. Uh, it doesn't need to be anything like that. It does need to be something which is relatively selfless. And this is very difficult in the modern world because how many people do we know who are really selfless? There are very, very few and far between. Many of us aspire to that. We try to be and probably fail absolutely miserably. But this is what it has to be all about you know if we do if we do stuff with the mind for purposes of gain and profit or to harm other people that essentially is black magic and that is something which has terrible reverberations and shouldn't be indulged in at all in any form uh, but there's a very fine line between you know that and uh, you know what a lot of people are thinking in their minds and particularly in the kind of the violent culture that we live in these days you know that not just a physically violent world but a world where people's mental architecture because it's plugged so much into the internet and video games and all sorts of other stuff it just has this diet of porno violence all the time it is a kind of pornography of violence you know war pornography they sometimes call it and i have um, as a journalist uh, been into one or two war zones in my life and you know, you can attest to the fact that that's how certainly some journalists see it. It's almost like being in, you know, a kind of uh, a pleasure dome where blood and conflict becomes a kind of glamorous uh, commodity in a strange sort of way. Never really understood it myself, but it's a very weird world, you know, and it, it just shows how maladjusted and how emotionally um, immature a lot of human beings are, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to what the, the person we were speaking to earlier with the addiction. Well, violence is very addictive. Once you've got into that, into that bloodlust, as they call it, it, it is a, it's a, it's a powerful force. Um, yeah. It, it, that's certainly something that we need to, to reflect on or when we're ready to reflect on it. And the mind drives the actions. So it's not like you could, you think it and it's not there. It's, it's, it's a real thing. A thought's a real thing and um, leads to real actions, which lead to real reactions. And there we've got the karmic cycle. 
So, yeah, really interesting. Well, we're coming towards the end of time, Tim, but would you, would you like to sort of round up with any sort of messages to the, to the audience on, on how they um, can cooperate with evolution for their, for their own betterment? They're prepared to listen to you. Well, I don't particularly want people to listen to me, but what I would say is, you know, people should examine what they do and just see whether they can, you know, just get some kind of hint or instinct about what has caused their present circumstances, be they good, bad, or indifferent. Now, very few people remember their past lives. There are techniques for doing this past life regression and other ways of doing it. But assuming that most people don't know about their past lives, um, if we just accept the fact that our current lives are be are shaped by what we did it and said and thought and got up to in the past, much of which will probably have been horrible and terrible and violent and nasty. Um, so if that impacts on our current lives, then it also by definition means that we are now shaping our future lives by what we do. And yeah, you know, we might have been bad people in the past, but we can change at any time. We can start to do things for purer motives. We can start to be of service to people. We can stop being greedy and selfish. And in my case, an extremely bad-tempered man. You know, we can try and work on these little um, vices that we have and work on them day by day. Uh, no one's going to be perfect. So if we know that we're part of a long continuum of lives, if we accept that, then we can reach a point where we say, okay, you know, we can bypass a lot of this. We can actually speed up our evolution by doing certain things in certain lives, you know, study, meditation, service, other techniques, which are not just about, you know, getting that Jaguar in the garage or going on the Bahamas, going to the Bahamas on holiday or anything like that. Any of these, you know, rather, well, transient status symbols that people aspire to. You know, if you aspire to something deeper than that, which is, you know, investing in your own personal evolution, not just your body, but if people worked as hard on their bodies, you know, as people do in the gyms and, you know, by doing sports, if they worked on their inner selves with anything like the same kind of enthusiasm, the planet would change at a stroke, I think. You know, people would realize that, you know, the way they've regarded themselves in the past is very, very limited. To see yourself just as, you know, flesh and bones and organs and a brain and that sort of thing is a very, very limiting thing because it just relies on five very limited physical senses. You know, I mean, our eyes can only see less than 1% of the electromagnetic spectrum. You know, our sense of smell and touch and taste is inferior to that of some plants and insects. So, you know, to rely purely on these physical senses is not the right way. Going to that deeper principle of intuition, looking inside, that's where the answers lie, inside and not necessarily out there. Beautiful. So people want to investigate and learn more about you and your work. Where should they go to find you? Um, well, I have a website where you can buy some of my books, which is called firewheelbooks.co.uk. Brilliant. Thank you. And if anybody's interested in the Aetherius Society, you can find us on aetherius.org. 
Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Good Brilliant. to talk to you. Yeah, I just say, I really appreciate that. And um, would you be willing to come back at a later date? Yeah. If we can find another topic to talk about. Yeah, yeah. You just put a, you know, like a gas meter, you just put a pound in the slot and I'll just talk forever. So, uh, yeah. No, it's nice to talk to you. And anytime you want it, um, you know, want it to, uh, to do something, just give me a call. I'm always happy to do it. Brilliant. What what I'm trying to do it with Mr. Cox and Jack's going to do all the auditing after this, so don't be worrying. But the what we're trying to do is let people um, hear that different organisations are actually saying the same thing. So we look for similarities. We look for the basic message out there that we are not, as you've just said, the five senses. And it's you know you haven't made it if you've if you've managed to win a holiday to the Bahamas that that type of thing to encourage and maybe to put those messages out into the mind belt that's going to be picked up. So you've done us a great service today. Thank you for that. Well, thank Appreciate you for it. having me. It's been great to talk to you. Okay, take care Bye. then. Bye. Bye. Yeah, bye. bye.